This is the Fenway Rundown, the premier podcast for all things Boston Red Sox. You know, people harp on the last place thing, but essentially what's important is the record. If the Red Sox want people to start thinking the ownership cares, then maybe they should talk. This is the Fenway Rundown, brought to you by Mass Live. Here are your hosts, Chris Cotillo and Sean McAdam. It's a Friday edition of the Fenway Rundown podcast. I'm Chris Cotillo. We have Sean McAdam here as well. Third show of the week. You heard from Trevor Story. You heard from J.P. Ricciardi. No guest today. We hate to disappoint, but it'll just be Sean and myself with, uh, first time in a while, a mailbag episode. We have tons of questions. As you know, if you listen to the show ever, because we plug it so many times, or if you follow us on Twitter, we no longer take mailbag questions via Twitter or X or what I call it, Hellscape. We take it via our Fenway Rundown Insider Text Program. We opened up the queue last night. If you wanted to have a question, you're a subscriber, you could send it in. Sean, for the next mailbag episode, how could somebody get involved? Yes, and please take this number down because it's hard to find otherwise on our site or on our podcasts. But if you have the inclination to join Insider Text, all you have to do is text the word JOIN to 617-751-6257, then click the link to subscribe. You are provided with a complimentary 14-day trial period, after which you may remain for the low, low, reasonable price of $4.99 per month. So that is what the many people who submitted questions, uh, that's how they gained access to be able to do that. I'm looking at our queue right now. We have 38 unread messages. Now, a little programming note. When I sent out the... Peel back that curtain, Chris. The curtain's, being, the curtain's being peeled. When I put out the blast last night, we call it a broadcast here in the business, on who on questions for the mailbag, we got a bunch, probably 35, and then I also sent out a broadcast this morning with the breaking news. You saw it on Mass Live first, the Red Sox signing CJ Crone to a minor league deal. We will touch on that in a minute. Um and a lot of people responded to that, and that, in some cases, preempts their responses to the mailbag. So I'm going to be going through this whole thing in real time. It's going to be awkward. Uh, if you if you sent in a question and we don't get to it, that is probably why. And obviously, you know, people ask similar questions. So we appreciate all the submissions. We'll try to name as many of you as we can over the next 30, 35 minutes or so. But the way the system looks right now, it's crowded, it's crazy, and that's a lot. Uh, thanks to CJ Crone the newest member of the Red Sox organization uh, would hate to toot our own horn on this show, but uh, we, we broke that story this morning and CJ Crone is coming to the Red Sox on a minor league deal. He's on his way to Fort Myers. This is a guy, Sean, who's had a pretty good career. 10 years in the majors was an all-star two years ago, kind of your classic burly first baseman, right-handed bat, a lot of power, you know, four or five seasons over 25 home runs. Again, an all-star two years ago was in the home run derby, which I didn't remember, but apparently happened. Last year had a lot of back issues, which also fits the frame. Limited to 71 games with the Angels and Rockies traded in the middle of the year. And, you know, this is a market we've seen crater. Minor league deals for some pretty, you know, established players. Garrett Cooper being one the other day. You know, Gio Urshela and Ahmed Rosario got very small guarantees. I think this just speaks to... 
the opportunity for the Red Sox. They can get this guy. They don't have to guarantee him anything right now, not even a 40-man roster spot, and see you know, if he looks healthy over the next three weeks and potentially give him Bobby Dahlbeck's spot on the roster. But just, I think, uh, a signing of opportunity here. Yeah, it, it's a chance to uh, deepen the bench and give them some options. And it seems to me, I think you're correct, that this is now uh, unofficially a competition between Crone and Dahlbeck for one of those spots on the major league roster. And as I look at it, it looks like the Red Sox can choose either between a more accomplished but limited major league power bat in Crone, a righty bat that could take some playing time from Casas at first base, but importantly, doesn't really fit in anywhere else. Sure, they could give him some DH at bats um, that would counter the left-handed uh, Masataka Yoshida at bats that we expect to take up most of the DH plate appearances. But Crone is kind of limited in what he can do in the field. He is a first baseman, period. Mm -hmm. uh, he does have a more accomplished, obviously, offensive history at the big league level. On the other hand, Dahlbeck gives you a lot of flexibility defensively. He can help out at third. That's his natural position. He can play first as he has the last few years up and down between Worcester and Boston. And now he can even contribute a little in one of the corner outfield spots. But what he can't do is provide that sort of established production at the big league level. We've seen him do it in spurts. We've seen him get hot for a while and, and uh, really go on a pretty good run. But as a guy with occasional at-bats, it's hard to rely on him offensively. So the Red Sox are asking themselves, what do we want? Do we want a limited guy in terms of where we can play him, but know that he'll give us competitive big league at-bats when he's in there? Or do we want a guy that we can move around and contribute at three different positions, but we're unsure of what we're going to get offensively? Right. And I think that is what they'll have to figure out in the next three weeks. You know, Dahlbeck, believe it or not, still has a minor league option remaining. So he is a guy that they can just stash at AAA. Crone is going to have an opt-out five days before camp, just like a couple other free agents they brought in. Roberto Perez, Joely Rodriguez, that's just part of the CBA. If you're a major league free agent, you sign a minor league deal, you get an opt-out, you know, on March 23rd. So decisions to be made on all of those guys. You know, the path is always clearer for the veteran addition to make the team and the other guy be optioned down. Because you have that roster flexibility. Look back to a year ago, they kept Tapia because they could option Duran to AAA. Duran came up and had a great year. Obviously, Tapia got to evade pretty quickly. But, you know, they could keep Crone on the roster and against all wishes of the actual player, put Bobby Dahl back, back in, in Worcester where he is, I believe, the mayor at this point with Ryan Fitzgerald gone. All right, lots of questions. We'll try to get to all of them. I think, you know, I'm seeing as I'm starting to kind of go through, three or four people uh, are the Red Sox going to add a right-handed bat. Easy. Yes, they did. Done. Okay, we'll move it on. Um, the well, I, I, we asked people to limit it to you know one or two questions, um, and we will start here with the farm system. A question from David: Us, any chance that Meyer makes it to a major league game this year? If not, which prospects take the leap first? Uh, somebody trying to you know make it. Uh, and Jason Parker saying, I'm assuming they don't want to rush Meyer back from injury, but I found it interesting that Anthony has started a couple of big league games. We haven't seen Meyer yet. 
how's he coming along and if we'll are we going to see him in any spring training games this year so a lot has been made of roman anthony including in your notes column this morning we'll get to him questions about him but just you know what you've heard on meyer and and why you think he's not in major league games to this point well i, I think most of it is health um you know he's still well they, they have said that the shoulder is fully healed but i think they're being ultra careful with him and as you would expect they might for such a prized prospect and a guy who figures to be an important part going forward. I don't think they want to rush him. They want to kind of ease him into the minor league schedule. If I'm betting, I think we see Meyer at some point in a major league spring training game could be a road game where you don't have a lot of regulars traveling and he goes and gets four or five innings at shortstop or a couple of at bats as a DH. Um, could Meyer make his debut in 25? Sure. I think any one of those three could potentially um, I, I saw this get addressed uh, in a couple of places, you know, which of the three, maybe it was Keith Law on The Athletic talking about which of those three are most likely or who would make their debut first. He seemed to get behind Kyle Teal because mm -hmm. which, he's a college. We have, and we have as well on the show before. Right. He's a college player. Um, he clearly has a path to be the starting catcher going forward where with Meyer and Anthony as prized and as well-regarded as they are, it gets a little complicated because there are other people at those positions. What do you do with Trevor Story? Do you play Meyer at second, keep Story at short? Do you put Meyer at short? Do you move Story back to second? With Anthony, do you put him in the middle or does he play a corner outfield spot? Teal's a catcher, period. That much is clear. And he's going to be the catcher of the future. The fact that he has played in a uh, in a big baseball conference at the college level that he made uh, such an impression in half a season in his first year of pro ball. Uh, he could be one of those extra guys in September. It could be they bring all three up as extras, not on the active roster, to just get a sense of what big league life is like for the last few weeks. A lot of it may depend on is this team in as unlikely as this seems now is the team in contention at all in September mm -hmm. that would seem to uh, work against any of them making their debut. You'd want a little more experienced guys as your extra bench guys in the final month. If you're playing meaningful games, short answer is yes. Any of those guys could, they have to be healthy and things have to break the right way. Yeah, I think I agree with, uh, as we talked about, the Teal thing, just because Anthony is so young. You know, I know he's very impressive. We'll talk about that in a sec. Meyer, the health issue, I just feel like, you know, Teal could push, um, especially if Wong, you know, is not playing particularly well. Um, you know, Teal is a guy who already made it up to double A very quickly. You know, he's the type of guy that could go very, very quickly. You know, Heimblum was a guy who liked to keep things slow and, you know, not promote very quickly. We don't know how Breslow is going to be in that regard. And so that's something to monitor as well. Pete W. asks very close to what we were just talking about, but I'm curious as to what people are thinking about Roman Anthony in camp. Is the expectation still that he won't come up until next year? I think based on age, yes, probably. And just, you know, you know about the outfield glut they have right now already. A trade or an injury might solve that issue. But, you know, young guys, Rafaela, they're going to want to see. Duran's still in the mix. Abreu, you know, they have O'Neal for this year. Yoshida is obviously still there. Ref Snyder's still there. So, like, I know you, you can make room for a guy who's probably one of the more talented players in your organization, but, you know, just got to double A, was a high school pick just two years ago. Like, I, I do think that it's going to take a little while for Anthony. 
that being said, and I know you wrote about this today and you were taken uh, aback almost by this when you had him on the podcast while I was on vacation, but the maturity from Roman Anthony is something that stuck out to you. Yeah, unquestionably. This guy is 19 years old. He turns 20 in a couple of months, uh, but he carries himself with the maturity of a guy who's been in the big leagues a couple of years. And I don't mean that in a cocky, uh, you know, stick your chest out kind of way. He's just uh, self-assured. He says the right things. He handles himself well. He's always complimenting his teammates. He's focused on winning. He keeps talking about when we win a World Series in Boston. Uh, It's clear that, you know, this guy has a lot of the intangibles you seek in addition to the great physical tools he has with a really sweet left-handed swing and the ability to hit for power, athletic enough to maybe stay in center field, although some people think ultimately he'll be a corner guy. He's only got about uh, average speed, so whether that's going to be an issue covering ground and center or not, but he has star written all over him. He doesn't act like one, but he acts like a very mature guy, wise beyond his years. So you'd say you enjoyed doing the Fenway rundown with him more than the regular co-host? Yeah, there there was a there was a hard thing to try to uh, put my finger on as to why that episode was so enjoyable to me. Part of it, I underscore part of it, was I enjoyed talking to Roman Anthony. Yeah, well, thank you. Much appreciated. We move on. Uh, a few different questions about our takeaways from spring training. Again, if you haven't checked out Sean's column from this morning, the Friday MLB Notes column, some observations and takeaways from Red Sox spring training. Uh, as we've said, programming note-wise, Sean, Chris Smith, and myself all just spent you know two and a half weeks down there. We're all back in Massachusetts. We'll be covering remotely for about 10 days, and then Sean and Chris are going to go back for the end of camp. I will be here for my um, extremely minor calf surgery that I've mentioned before. So uh, Sean will be on the pot alone next week, but I'm fine. Uh, I will not be going back down to Fort Myers, so I'll have to find Outback Steakhouses elsewhere. Um, Takeaways, questions from Daryl Dugway, from Tony Brown, and from Mike Granger. Mike asks, it seems like the overall vibe of the team is pretty positive. Is that the sense you're getting around camp as well? Tony said, what are some of the things you look for in regard to Red Sox players on the field during spring training? Do you know what players are working on? Can you give us a rundown? If that's a pun, we appreciate it. And Daryl says, has anyone stood out to you so far this spring, such as a Rule 5, a non-roster invitee, somebody you might not have expected to or possibly making the opening day roster who wasn't thought to? Thank you to the three of you for questions. I'll, I'll, I come at this potentially from a different angle than Sean does from covering baseball for as long as you have. Uh, spring training, to me, I don't put really any stock into the games. I don't think that the team does either. Um, you know, like there are certain things you can see in the games and maybe improvements that can apply, but performance in the games has never really been indicative of performance in the regular season. I think, you know, talking to some players in the last few weeks, they have been asked in these early spring training games to tinker, to throw new pitches, to try something different with the swing because it doesn't matter. And so, you know, if you see a guy go out and give up four runs, five runs, because they're asking him to throw a pitch he's not comfortable with just to see how it plays in the game, that's not going to be indicative of how they judge the roster at the end of this thing. And that is very real. I don't think I really understood that when I started covering the game. I don't think fans would have really any reason to understand that because, you know, hey, you want to win a game. Look, the Red Sox had like a 10-game 
Grapefruit League winning streak last year. A lot of the players who won those games, you never saw in the majors. Um, and, a, and a fat lot of good that did them when the season began. Exactly right. And so, and the other thing I'll say in terms of vibes, you know, the thing I'm taking away from my couple weeks down there is like, with the exception of Kenley Jansen, who, you know, was, you know, been asked by us, EEI, the Globe, if he's frustrated, and he is, and he should be, and that's understandable. Everybody, you know, seems to be, and I think I've said this before, like, it's not a, oh, well, we're going to throw our hands up and, you know, they didn't try to help us. So, you know, screw them. You know, Devers was obviously angry and Jansen, but like that team is a lot of guys who don't have much service time, don't much have, don't have much major league time under their belt. And for a lot of these guys, it's a great opportunity. And I think that's how they're looking at it from a player's perspective. Now, if the sum of that is uh, a team that wins more than like 82, 83 games, we're going to be shocked, but I think they look at it that way. And I do think on the pitching side, and you, Sean, I think alluded to this this morning, we've talked about it with Giolito and others, like the whole idea of competition, the whole idea of a real, you know, improvement in the structure there. I think the players have been impressed by it. Again, if they don't win games, it's not going to matter. I, I caveat all of this with it does not really matter. The point of spring training is to, you know, stay healthy, which they've generally done so far. I know there's still a month to go before the regular season, but um you know, like some intangible things have been positive. Again, uh, is it going to add five wins? Probably not. So it doesn't matter in the grand scheme, but those are just my kind of thoughts from down there. Yeah. I would say that there's a decent amount of energy around the team. Again, it's spring training. Why wouldn't there be? Everybody's fresh for the most part. Everybody's healthy. There's the traditional optimism that comes with starting a new year where you can look around and say, well, if this guy does this and this other teammate accomplishes that, we can be right in the middle of this thing. It's natural to have that. It's a good thing to have no matter how good your team is actually going to be. But I do see a little uptick in energy. I do see them uh, kind of getting into that spirit of competition, the culture change that got talked about the first week of camp where guys are competing where they're keeping track of how many times a catcher drops a pitch and charting it and putting it up in the clubhouse. And you see guys give each other a hard time about, you know, winning a particular drill or finishing first in something. Uh, they're, they're trying to encourage that, uh, that attitude change, that commitment to competition. And I think it's been good. Um, how much it's going to help them, as you said, compete during the regular season remains to be seen. But if you can take any hint or indication from how guys are behaving and the way they're moving about their everyday tasks, then it does seem a little bit more upbeat. And as they have uh, set out as a goal, more competitive. Yeah. David Jen with a question, you know, after a week plus in Florida, watching the new pitching development, can either of you say anything about what you've seen to make a sad and jilted Red Sox fan feel better about the future of this club, just like on field methods, how they work with pitchers. I think, you know, as Giolito said on the pod, streamlined communication, very clear with what they want people to work on. You know, they clearly put in a lot of time. It seems like Willard and Bailey are very tight. You know, Breslow is letting those guys run the show. You know, not a knock on Dave Bush, who like was a good guy, a pretty good pitching coach of highly thought of by the Red Sox and, you know, he was uh, hired to run the pitching infrastructure of the team that just won the World Series. So he's still highly thought of around the game, too. But they just wanted, I think, a new voice, somebody that kind of jibe with Breslow's ideas a little bit more. And I think, you know, there are some guys you're going to take see 
take steps forward. I just still think, you know, at the end of the day, it's all well and good, but there's still, you know, a talent deficit out there. And I think that's a real thing. We'll move on to pitching additions. I do want to yep. get your take. Go ahead. Yeah. You have, well, you have I'm just going to say that a lot of this is, is from Craig Breslow down. He hired yep. Bailey. He brought in Willard. He's got a vision to improve the pitching development program, emphasis on development. Now, as he has said, and we've heard Giolito and some others say, you can develop as a big leaguer. You can be Lucas Giolito with, uh, you know, six years of service time, six or seven years of service time, and still want to get better, change your repertoire, do something different. Development shouldn't stop. But the real impact of this program is going to come in 25 and 26 when we see what it's meant for Gonzalez or Perales or some of the other younger arms as they get closer to the big leagues. Um, but they're putting something in motion here that that is going to they hope will pay dividends. It, it, I, I would just caution against expecting that a switch is going to get flipped and guys that uh, that have struggled with consistency at the big league level, guys like Whitlock and Hauk, could they get better this year and reflect that improvement? Yes, but it's only going to go so far. And this is, they're doing this with the long game in mind. Scott Pratt asks, and I'll turn it to you here now. What has been the most surprising thing you saw at spring training? You know, we get asked this all the time. What guys stuck out? What Chris, one Chris, got- Chris Smith eating, rotisserie chicken and baby carrots every night for dinner like he was that that is not new at all that is a time-honored spring training tradition so that doesn't count right yeah i I would just go back to the general energy and organization um you know and uh, as i mentioned this morning uh some credit has to go to bench coach ramon vasquez the bench coach is traditionally a guy who's in charge of spring training planning the workouts planning the drills so he gets high marks for having that kind of atmosphere and everybody being a little more energized. Uh, while we were there, we saw, I think, maybe three or four games. So to read anything into on-field performance, <clears throat> after we talked about how in the big scheme of things, whether you go 0 for 4 or 3 for 4 in a great fruit league game in late February is not going to uh, tip the scales all that much. But I would just say the general atmosphere and energy and investment that we're seeing really throughout camp was the thing that caught my eye the most. Yep, and I would agree with that. Um, and certain players, you know, guys stand out. I think Justin Slayton has. I think the Red Sox are high on Isaiah Campbell out of the um, bullpen. You know, there's just uh, – it's spring training stars, right? I mean, Sam Travis was one for a while. Dahlbeck keeps being one, all that type of stuff. We'll turn over to the starting rotation. Rich Lyons asking about, other than Jordan Montgomery, name two or three younger number ones for which we could potentially trade. I think the door's closed on that for a little while, especially considering you don't see those types of trades in spring training. Clearly, when they looked at you know Miami or Seattle or any of those types, they thought the price was way too high uh, in terms of prospects, and they weren't willing to do that. David Gablaskis, if Montgomery proves too expensive, is there a left-handed starter available to balance the all-right-handed rotation? What I'd say on that Craig Breslow didn't seem too concerned with that. It's really about just getting hitters out, period. They feel like their righties can get lefties out. That remains to be seen, uh, obviously, with whoever wins that fifth spot. Um, 
you know, Bayo has had some success against lefties in the past. I know it's been an issue for Hauk. So I don't think they're too worried about that. They, you know, are okay going with five righties. You know, the bigger question I think here is Jordan Montgomery. He remains out there. To me, and I've said this before, every day that goes by increases the chances for the Red Sox to land him in my mind. Not greatly, but just because at some point he's going to meet, going to panic and going to need to make the move. You reported uh, recently the Red Sox stay have stayed in contact with him, but the budget's been set for months and that has not moved. You know, I think there was a lot of excitement for that morning earlier in the week about the big Zoom call with them. I thought it was interesting, Cora almost throwing cold water on that by saying, oh, that was a couple weeks ago, don't get excited. Uh, maybe tempering expectations a little bit. John Heyman, interestingly, very plugged in uh, there, w- said wrote today in the post the likely destiny if he were to guess where montgomery's going still the rangers and we've heard the angels are in you know snell talking to the yankees and the giants like i just i don't think his market's going to crater to the point where the red Sox are going to want to try to fit him into this bs budget they've come up with and i also kind of get the sense the more this goes on knowing absolutely nothing and i i know some things but not on this that maybe Craig Breslow doesn't look at this guy as the answer. Difference maker. Yeah, you know, like it might be a question of the budget, which we all think it is, and it might be like this isn't the guy he's going to go to bat for with John Henry because in part he doesn't think they're close enough where it's going to make a difference, or he just looks at this guy and says, you know, there's going to be better guys out there in the future. I mean, it's a stacked class next year. Yeah, I mean, I I think we've – Part of it is the hunger that Red Sox fans feel for a dramatic move and a big free agent signing. And yes. look, I wrote this morning, Jordan Montgomery, I mean, this is the, the most obvious thing on earth, that Jordan Montgomery would make them better. When you get a left-handed starter, as you noted, they don't have one. When you get a guy who uh, is pretty consistently 170, 175 innings guy, uh, who's been able to stay healthy, who's pitched in New York, so he's pitched in a big market, who has succeeded in the postseason, that's a pretty good pitcher. Um, but I, I think most people would also agree, if you're talking to evaluators in the game, that Jordan Montgomery is either a really good number three or a pretty good number two. He's not somebody that's going to come in and boost your win total by 10. He might improve it by three or four, which might make the difference between winning 78 again and finishing over 500 and having a little bit of progress and giving fans a little hope going forward. And then he slides back into that three or four spot over the next few years while you bring in some other pitching or develop younger pitching. But I I think the fact that even though he would be a solid signing, um, I think people are starting to overstate the impact that a guy like Montgomery himself and alone would have on one particular season. And John McSheffrey asking, question simple, who's more likely to be on the Red Sox opening day roster, Kenley Jansen or Jordan Montgomery? I don't think they're training Kenley before opening day, and I don't think they're signing Jordan Montgomery. So I think that's yep, a pretty that, simple That's a pretty there. easy one. I think we both believe that you could book it right now that Kenley gets dealt by the deadline unless the Red Sox somehow, uh, some way, find themselves in contention at the end of July, which I don't think either of us expect. Um, Jansen is as good as gone at the deadline because he's the perfect trade piece. 
you'd be asking some team to take on a little more than $5 million at that point. That's not onerous for any team. He could be a difference maker for a team that has ninth inning issues. And let's face it, every year there are good teams that falter in the ninth inning. The Rangers did it last year and got Chapman. He didn't ultimately help, but they did. They they made it work uh, with some other guys in house. But there are always teams looking to fortify the back end of the bullpen. So I don't see Jansen being moved now, but I absolutely almost guarantee it by the end of July. Yep. Couple questions about the roster, the opening day roster. We're going to try to speed up here because we got a lot left to get to, and and we're you know we're up against time. Frank Prinsky asking, the Red Sox have signed a number of players this year to minor league contracts who have major league experience. Contreras, Colasvari, Perez, all these guys. Do any of those players have opt-outs in their contracts if they aren't on the roster by a certain date? And then Ralph A. asking, does anyone see surprise opening day roster moves? Someone expected to make the team who doesn't or the reverse? First question I'll answer simply. A lot of those guys do have them built in. Uh, the ones we can tell you about right now that we know of for sure. Roberto Perez, Joely Rodriguez, and CJ Crone, as I mentioned, five days before the and, opening day. And that's an automatic clause yep, it is. Uh, that, as you said, is guaranteed by the CBA and based on service time. Um, so those guys didn't negotiate that. that that's, uh, that's mandated by the CBA to protect older guys, to give them some freedom and flexibility. So those are the decisions that are going to be, have to be made, you know, like, Yesterday, I would have said, and I projected that Dahlbeck would be on the roster now. Obviously, a harder path for him with Crone. I do want to get to two other guys that uh, were on the team all of last year, who I now think that there is a path for them not to be on opening day. Uh, one I wrote about yesterday, and one you know, I kind of thought about including in that roster projection, but wanted to save it for the pod. Rob Refsnyder, a uh, guy who has been a useful player for the Red Sox for the last couple of years, respected clubhouse presence, extremely smart guy. You know, I've said this to you, Sean, before, like, if if Rafaela makes the team and you have Rafaela, Duran, Abreu, Yoshida, uh, and O'Neal, like, do you have room for Rob Refsnyder? I think at that point, probably not. If they can't find a trade for him, maybe a DFA. And something we were talking about in the parking lot, I think, of a restaurant in Fort Myers, because that's what our whole live, live, lives have been the last two weeks. The Red Sox don't have a ton of AAA starting depth. Could they, instead of putting Josh Winkowski in the bullpen in the majors to start the year if he doesn't make the rotation, keep him stretched out at AAA Worcester? Yeah, I mean, he does have options uh, remaining, so uh, they could do that. Uh, I'm sure that would come as a demoralizing blow to Winkowski after being a solid reliever last year. But if they were to present it to him as, look, you want to start, and we like the idea of this, but we think we need to watch to, to have you get more innings and more time. So spend April in Worcester getting four or five starts, build up a little bit, and then let's see where we are in terms of health and performance at the major league rotation level. Uh, I, I would not rule that out. They certainly have enough arms that can cover whatever Winkowski was going to as kind of the seventh inning guy, whether it be... Uh, Campbell or Weissert or any number of contenders in camp uh, that that could be part of that solution. So um, I, I would not rule that out. Yep, I think it's possible too. Uh, Chris Connor with a similar question: Percent chances that Nick Sogard and Sedan Rafaela break camp? 
What would the transactional fallout be, adding them to the 26-man roster? And Chris thinks they have to trade an outfielder. Right? I think you just DFA Ref Snyder at that point. Nick Sogard is our early Sam Travis Award candidate. Like Cora said, uh, he's going to help us at some point. I see no way in which he makes the opening day roster. The better question here, Sean, is on Rafaela. Yeah, and that's going to be fascinating to watch unfold over the next few weeks. It's not about the defense, as we know. He is ready to play center field in the big leagues right now. He has superb athleticism. He can be a plus defender in the middle of the field, either at shortstop or center field. For now, they have settled on center field. It's all about his at-bats. Uh, you know, we, we just got through saying, well, they don't put too much stock in a player's performance in Grapefruit League play. This is the exception. And it's not about batting average or OBP. It's about evaluating the quality of the at-bats. Is he working counts? Uh, is he staying within the zone? Is he making good swing decisions? Is he able to take pitches? Is he able to get walks and get on base and take advantage of his speed? Those things are going to play out over the next few weeks. I happen to think there's a decent chance he, he emerges here as the center fielder, and I also agree with you. If that happens, it's impossible or very difficult to envision how Rob Ref Snyder keeps on the major league roster. A couple of big picture questions. One from Paul Farrell here. We've all heard the reasons for expecting an unsatisfactory season. What would be two or three reasons to be optimistic about overperforming the pundits in last year's results? Um, if they start doing golf scoring and the lowest win total finishes first, probably. Jim McVeary says, I'm a lifelong Red Sox fan who now lives in the Mid-Atlantic. We're going to Boston in June. Five, ten years ago, I would have gone to at least two games. Even paying a premium on the secondary market. This year, I see buying Fenway tickets as being no different than writing a check for Red Sox ownership, transferring my money to a billionaire. Why should I bother to see a last-place team when there are a lot of other things to do in greater Boston? Two big questions kind of saying the same thing. Is this team going to be as bad as we think? And are there reasons for optimism? I think you need a lot to break right in the starting rotation. You need Pavetta to be really good. You need Giolito to be pretty good. You need Bayo to take that step forward. You need either Houck or Whitlock to be really good. You need Crawford to take a step forward. You need Casas to not regress. You need Grissom to be like, I mean, we could go every position story to bounce back. Like, there's not a lot of certainty. There's a lot of ceiling, but asking everybody to hit their ceiling in one year. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I, I, every spring I say the same thing. If you're needing five or six things to all happen for a team to improve, you're probably not going to get that. If you are able to take a step forward by having three or four of those things happen out of six, then you have a better chance. But for everything to click, that's asking a lot. I would say it's less about the position players and everyday lineup. Even if story struggles a little bit offensively at the beginning of the year, you're going to have gold glove caliber defense at short. That's more than they've had there at the start of the last two years. Um, so I don't worry so much about him. I don't worry about Casas regressing to me. It is almost all on the starting rotation. And you went through all the guys. Can Giolito be the guy he was in the first half of last year or the guy he was before 22? Can Bayo make the next step? Can either Hauk or Whitlock achieve some consistency? Can Crawford go deeper? It's all about the starting rotation. If a few of those things fall, then they could be a 500 club, and that seems like damning with faint praise, but let's remember the division they play in. I think they could be a little better, 
but it won't necessarily reflect in the one loss record. Yep. Matthew Maruka, is there merit to the idea of the frugality of the Red Sox front office is looking at the demographic demographic shift of younger people being less interested in baseball and the Red Sox are assuming the industry won't be able to sustain high payroll in the future. I don't no, know what they're no stop. Are. Stop providing them with an out like that. There are plenty of owners and plenty of franchises investing heavily in their teams, particularly in big markets, whether it's the Mets, the Yankees, the Dodgers, the Cubs, uh, others, the Phillies certainly have gone in. This is the, let's not read into too much of this. This is not some commentary on the industry. This is John Henry deciding that the team is not yet ready to compete for a playoff spot. So it's, he views it as throwing good money after bad, and he's not willing to do that yet. When they improve and get closer to contention, he says he will again. We'll see if that's true, but no, this is not some uh, giant economic theory class writ large this is a guy who doesn't want to spend a lot this year period end of story a couple questions about red sox legends coming back players staying in their red sox uniforms their whole career charlie kernan kernan sorry said good to see lester back in red sox gear you know a book idea is why did lester betts and bogarts go the way of carlton fisk fred lynn and clemens and not be yaz ted williams pedroia or rice well the answer is the red sox lowballed lester they lowballed betts and they lowballed bogarts and all three of those guys uh left um another question being from as the initials here um assuming age and cost didn't matter which player in the whole organization would you choose to be a red sox for their whole career i mean i think it's devers right like he's the one who has yep. the 10 um the 10-year contract, I think Casas wants to, but he also I think he's a guy who's going to be willing to bet himself and hit free agency. Um, I want to ask you, just knowing and covering what it was 10 years ago with John Lester, are you a little surprised to see him back in camp and what kind of impact can he have here? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think the impact is going to be minimal, frankly, at least this year. I think he's only staying two days. So it, it's just dipping his toe back into the water taking a look at some of the young arms, offering what uh, input he can both to the players themselves and also management. Uh, this is a guy that has won a bunch of World Series. He was an excellent postseason performer. He knows what it's like to operate and succeed in a pressurized environment. And I am somewhat surprised that he's back because it was not a good parting of the ways. Uh, they they lowballed him ridiculously at the start of his walk year. Uh, they made a half-ass attempt when he was a free agent again after the trade in the middle of the season, and he felt a little insulted by that, and that's understandable, but it is a good sign that there has been some outreach, and he's willing to let that go and come back and contribute because I think uh, the more voices you have of past performers who were real standouts, the better it is for the organization. couple of questions on the same topic here from Anthony Stiles. And uh, 847 number without a name. We can't give you the credit for the question, but we appreciate it nonetheless. Uh, this is both before and after the Crone news. Do you think there's a possibility for another right-handed hitting outfielder? Do you think there's a possibility for another bat to come in? In my mind, like, I think Crone kind of, in a, not, and not in a, you know, over the moon, this roster is great type of way, but just the pieces they have. Feels like he could be the last move on the position player side, like a right-handed hitting outfielder, you know, yep. like a dude. The, the only ball. the only way I could see them maybe going and getting a righty outfielder would be um, if over the next ten days Rafaela 
kind of falls flat and they realize he's not ready, then maybe the interest in Duval gets reignited as a guy that can come and give him a little more sock from the right side. Um, I could see that unfolding, but I also don't think that Raphael is going to take himself out of contention. I mean, if it's the end of March and they decide he needs to go to Worcester for a couple of months, then maybe Duval is still out there and they bring him in, but he's not going to be ready to start the year. So, you know, it, it's getting late. Uh, opening day is now less than uh, four weeks. It was four weeks yesterday. Um, and time's starting to run out in terms of it's a little easier for position players to get ready at this point. They can come in and be ready pretty quickly in a couple of weeks. Pitchers are going to need more time. This one comes from Nick B. On our perspective at Winter Weekend, Craig Breslow said, if we're having this conversation next year, we have failed. How should Breslow be held accountable for the statement? How do we measure his success? Blah, blah, blah. Not in a disrespectful blah, blah, blah. It's just a long question I'm trying to yeah, move through. I, I mean, I would and say I, the gen- the general performance of the pitching staff. Yeah. Uh, you know, did did Bailey and Willard have an impact on guys like Crawford, like Hauk, like Whitlock, like Bayo? Uh, did they straighten out Giolito? Um, you know, we're not going to see Perales or Gonzalez anywhere near the big leagues this year, nor should we. And there isn't a whole lot um, that is close to ready at AAA to come in and make an impact. So, the, the guys that have struggled to achieve some consistent performance level at the big leagues need to get better. They don't have to turn into Cy Young award candidates, but they need to be, they need to show improvement over what they've done in the past. That's, that's year one in evaluating what Breslow means to uh, the pitching staff. Yeah. And I think overall, like he gets a free pass from me on a lot of things because he didn't set the budget. And now we know that that's been the answer the whole time as we've been surmising, like if this team is not super competitive, doesn't take a huge step forward and they miss the playoffs, it's on you, John Henry, you had the opportunity and you were cheap. So that's, I think what it comes down to there in, in my mind. Um, let's see what else we have. We had a question about Brian Mata. I lost it here, so I can't give the credit for who asked it, but do you ever see him pitching for the Red Sox? Uh, I'll answer this one quickly. Um, you know, to me, he is a guy who, you know, getting hurt here honestly helps the Red Sox a little bit push that decision down the road. They get to see him in AAA for 30 days on a rehab assignment at some point. If he's really good then, maybe they give him a chance out of the bullpen. I think it all depends on that rehab window. Um but the ceiling and the shine, I think, is off of him just because he cannot stay healthy for whatever reason. Yeah, I mean, he really hasn't pitched much the last three years between Tommy John and being limited last year. Uh, the stuff is raw. It's good um, when he can command it. The the walk total has been pretty high. Um, you know, I think you have to look at him as being a rule five guy if they try to sneak him through waivers later this month. Uh, a guy with a lot of talent, some upside, but hasn't done it. Is someone else going to, you know, we know that teams like to try to sneak guys through at the end of spring training because everybody else is uh, is trying to do the same. And it's hard for teams to find room on their major league roster. Um, anybody that that uh, that would take Mata would have to put him on their major league roster, essentially, because um, he has no options remaining. I, I I don't think that's going to be an issue. I think they that they'll be able to outright him. What happens from here on out remains to be seen. 
but I don't see another team taking a chance on him. And the fact that he's injured is obviously negatively impacting his chance to make the team here. Yep. And that's always kind of been the case for him and throughout his career. Moving quickly through the last like 10 or so, we have Michael Dabreski. It appears Cora won't be here next season. Is it safe to assume Jason Veritek is the favorite to be the manager next year? Let me cook, Sean, because I can't stand when people bring this up. Uh, Not because uh, the fans don't know what they're talking about, but because the Red Sox and I think history has pushed this narrative. I think there's a zero chance it happens. And I think you agree with me on that. The Red Sox have never interviewed Jason Veritek for their managerial opening. They've had three chances to do it. They could have interviewed him in 2017 when they hired Cora, in 2020 when they hired Renicky, and in 2020 later that year when they hired Cora. They've never interviewed him for pitching coach. They've had openings twice. Dave Bush got the first time, Dana Levangi the second time. I mean, uh, Andrew Bailey the second time. It went from Levangi to Bush to Bailey. I think that Veritek's useful in his role, but as a public-facing spokesman for the organization, I think the Red Sox have some fears about that. This is a guy who everybody thought was a future manager, and you know he's now been around for a while. He's only gotten a couple of very quick bites. The Giants wanted him. Uh, for an interview, but ended up hiring Melvin. Um, Seattle a few years ago interviewed him. Yeah, and the you know, and I think that you just look at you know what could possibly be um, you know if a couple teams fall out of it. You know, if Dave Roberts doesn't win a World Series, I've been saying that it's hard to see the Dodgers um, moving on from him. But if they don't win a World Series with this roster, I could see it happening. That's why we've talked about Cora to L.A. He'd be a fit. David Ross potentially, and I think Sean and I both think. Andrew Bailey is a potential future manager and the relationship yeah, well, with Breslow makes that possible too. Right. I was going to say, what about Bailey as the manager and Veritek being promoted to pitching coach? I could certainly mm-hmm. see that unfolding. Veritek as the game plan coordinator and catching instructor would be a natural to move into that pitching coach role with the experience he's had the last few years. If Bailey has designs on managing, which we think he might down the road, that would be one option and then promote Veritek to the pitching coach. Scott Friends, what's the league's feelings about Casas in regards to his peers, standard batting and fielding, and advanced analytics? This is mostly fueled by Mike Petrello having Casas outside his top three rookie of the year for last season. I voted for that award. I had him second. But I think, you know, if you look at the numbers, and especially if you look at the numbers early in the year, this is a case. We This is a, a battle that we all face. Is beat writers covering the Red Sox. Sean and I see the Red Sox every day and can give you a more complete analysis of those guys than players on other teams. And so uh, if you look at Casas' numbers, especially early, you'd probably be underwhelmed. I do think that, um, you know, if you watched him every day and you watched him especially over the summer and how much he carried the offense, I'll say the same thing about Duran, who we'll talk about in a second on the next question. Like, he was elite for a very long time, hitting the ball hard, great approach. I think the way he talks about hitting, I always point back to a – Story that he did with David Lorela of Fangraphs last year, just the way he talks about hitting, very, very impressive. I, I do think around the game he's viewed as probably one of the best young first basemen there are. There is. Yeah. I, I mean, I think he's a star in the making. I think he's going to be a big power hitter and run producer for a long time. Um, if the Red Sox are smart, they'll make progress uh, this spring or next winter on an extension and get that done. But uh, I'm not saying he's going to be an MVP, but I think he is going to be a legitimate all-star caliber player very soon, including potentially this year. Two guys in different boats who have been talked about a little bit in trade rumors. Pat Walsh asking about Nick York. Peter Tebow, I got it, talking about Jaron Duran. 
Um, why are the Sox entertaining moving Duran when he's so impactful? I tend to agree with you, Peter, that I think they shouldn't. I think the ceiling is pretty high. Sean has some different thoughts on that. But, Sean, just your thoughts on the futures of both of those guys. I know different players. But we lump them in in the interest of time here in Duran and York. Yeah, I mean, York is blocked here. Let's face it. Uh, they see Grissom as the second baseman uh, of the uh, of the present and future. Uh, they're going to give him time to succeed in that role. York, they're talking about having him get some playing time in a corner outfield spot, but I, I don't know if he's athletic enough to do that on a full-time basis. Um, it, it, it would not surprise me, although you don't see young players often traded in March or before a season starts, but I could certainly see him being part of a package at the deadline or next winter. Uh, it's hard to envision much of a future here for him. I am not as high on Duran as you are. Uh, I think there are some uh, nice skills there, speed being the most obvious, uh, and maybe some additional power that is untapped. I still see him as a very average defender in the outfield. And with Rafaela developing and having a much higher ceiling defensively, I think he may be a little redundant, and maybe they believe they could get something for him while his value is still high. Uh, I, I do question how much of a future he has here. I'm not saying he doesn't have it in the game, but he too uh, is going to be fighting for some playing time if certain things unfold. Steve Powell asked, and I think this is a very good question, and uh, this actually folds into a question from Bill Crawford too. Steve's question was, uh, what happened to all the talk about positional versatility Breslow was talking about early in the year? Uh, is Breslow lacking common sense? Jeez. With Casas, Devers, Massa, and Crone, that's four first-base DH types, which is worse than last year. Bill Crawford asking, is it really a good plan to still have Devers playing third? If this season actually mattered, he could cost you a few games with his defense there. Um, I do find it funny in terms of the DH that they talked about, you know, moving away from a guy who could, um, you know, take the at-bats there every day. It looks like Yoshida is going to be taking the at-bats there every day, and he's probably a worse defender than Turner was and a more important spot. Like I, it's, I think it was all code for we don't have any money to spend, so we can't re-sign Justin Turner. You know, like I think that's what it, it, it may well to. be. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, this is not the DH. You know, we were led to believe that it was going to be 40 games here for somebody and 50 games for this guy and 30 games for that. We now expect that Yoshida is probably going to play more than 100 games at DH. And by the way, that would be more starts at DH than Justin Turner had last year. I think it was in the 90s. Mm -hmm. uh, some of that was health, obviously, down the stretch. Um, he would have had more otherwise. But it does seem to be a contradiction to what uh, Breslow was saying from the first week he was on the job at the GM meetings out in Scottsdale, saying they value versatility, they want to have flexibility. Instead, they're essentially taking a guy out of left field who they know is not even an average defender, and by default, giving him those at-bats. You'll see a little bit of Casas there, a little bit of Devers, but I emphasize a little bit, and they are seemingly going back to that plan. And thoughts on Bill's question about third? Is it just a matter of the roster is the roster and he's got to play there? Yeah, I, I mean, um, if they can get Devers to play third base the way he did in 22 rather than 23, I think they'd be okay with that. And that means, you know, two or three, minus two or three defensive runs saved over a course of a season. If you can get him close to league average, and obviously zero defensive runs saved would be right at the median there, Um 
I, I think they'd be okay with that because of what he gives you production wise. Are there going to be plays that he doesn't make that you hope he would? Yes. Are there going to be times where he gets down on himself, gets in his head and makes two or three errors in the span of five games? Yes. But if you can minimize those stretches, keep them shorter and have them rebound a little bit, I think they can live with his defense. We will end with two big picture questions that fold in. Dan Prinzo asking previously on the Sean, <laughs> previously on the pod, Sean speculated that as far as budget, there might be a disconnect between Warner and Henry. I could see this. Is there any truth to it? And Noah asking in that vein, what are your thoughts on the Yamamoto offer? Do you believe it to be true they offered more than $300 million? And how does that make you feel going into next offseason? I don't think they did offer $300 million. That's a complete guess on my part. The Red Sox, that's something you would think they would be excited to confirm. And in Sean, your efforts for them to do that, they have not confirmed that they have gone over three hundred. Talk about peeling back the curtain there. Um, so I don't know. But uh, I give if you want to give thoughts to end here on that and also the Warner-Henry thing. Yeah, I, I think the Warner Henry thing is going to bear watching over the next, uh, you know, over this season and the next little while to see if there really is a, a divide and, and a different philosophy. Uh, I think Tom is naturally a go along to get along kind of guy, uh, but he may also be feeling the frustration that a lot of the fans are about three last place finishes in four years and the declining attraction of the Red Sox as a TV property, because that's his area of expertise. He knows that you need to win and you need to have some stars. And I think given his druthers, he would be behind spending more to get to that level. The question is, does it ever come to a head? Is there ever, and if it does, what does it mean? Because John is the, principal owner. He's not the majority owner, meaning he doesn't have more than 50%, but he's got more than anybody else. He controls the purse strings. He's the guy ultimately making the call. Does Tom Warner go to the mattresses at some point and say, look, we've got to change this. The value of the team is, is declining. The popularity of the team is declining as measured by attendance and TV ratings. We need to be more aggressive. Does it ever get to that point where there's a, uh, God forbid, Haywood Sullivan, Buddy LaRue kind of divide among ownership. I, don't I, def I get... definitely know what that means. Yep. Yep. Definitely. Uh, well, you know where you could read that? Never mind. Um, the, the, there really is, uh, right it's going to be interesting to monitor, uh, you know, in terms of whether there is a divide at the top and whether Warner does anything to uh, encourage either privately or publicly a more aggressive spend. That is a very action-packed mailbag version of the Fenway Rundown for this Friday. Again, expect Sean to be uh, anchoring the show by himself early next week. I'm going to, you know, be laying down on the couch, and there's going to be pain meds involved. And how will that be different? I know. I'm sitting up right now. So, uh, you know, should be back by the end of next week. Do have uh, a couple of very, very, very in-depth feature stories coming as a little tease there, uh, something that – We'll be coming down the road next week. But uh, that has been a Mailbag Fenway Rundown again. Thanks for all the questions. We had a ton of them. How would someone in a future Fenway Rundown Mailbag episode, Sean, get involved? Well, Christopher, I'm glad that you asked that question because all one needs to do is to text the word JOIN to the following phone number. That is 617-751-6257 and click the link to subscribe. A 14-day trial period is available therein and after which 
you will be charged a very reasonable $4.99 per month to contribute to shows just like the one you just finished listening to. This has been the Fenway Rundown, brought to you by Mass Live.